At the beginning of every year and then typically in the middle of each year, we spend one Sunday thinking about the Word of God, the power of the Word of God, the sufficiency of the Word of God, and the relevance of the Word of God. What is the Word of God designed to do in us? And we have been doing that for some time now in Psalm 119. I started doing this many years ago, doing one stanza each January in Psalm 119. And then I did the math and I said, if the Lord would grant me health, I'll be almost 70 before I finish this psalm. I've got to do something to pick up the pace. And so we started doing one psalm and one stanza in January and then one in the middle of the year. And this morning... I'm not yet 69. I just want you to know um, this morning we come to the last of these stanzas. As we come to Psalm 119, 169, and that's a mouthful to say, isn't it? As we come to this last stanza in this magnificent psalm, some of the things that we're going to see in this stanza are very typical of things that we have seen all the way through this psalm. We're going to see a prayer for understanding of God. We're going to see that the psalmist is living according to your word. We're going to see him voice uh, a desire for being instructed by God's divine teaching. Uh, We're going to see God's righteousness and the righteousness of his word. We're going to see the psalmist's need for help and the psalmist's need for your salvation. We're going to hear him say yet again, your law is my delight. We're going to hear him uh, lament and desire to live. We're going to hear him say, I am your servant. We're going to hear him say, I do not forget your word. And all of these are things that we have seen all the way through this psalm. It's, it's full of, as it were, last time to say something that is critical and essential. And yet there is in this last stanza a new emphasis as well. The uniting of the themes of Bible and prayer. While the psalmist prays frequently in all the other stanzas as well, this may be the most prayer-centric stanza in this psalm. As the psalmist reads the Word of God, he is stimulated to pray, and as he prays, he remembers the Word of God. And we find this interplay throughout this stanza. And it is a reminder to us of the importance of both Bible and prayer in our spiritual lives. We need Bible and we need prayer. One person asked on one occasion, probably more than one, has asked, which is more important in the spiritual life? As you think about sanctification, what's most essential? As you think about becoming like Jesus Christ, what do you need most? you need Bible most or prayer most? It's a fair question. A wise man answered and said, which wing on the airplane is most important, port or starboard? You need them both for the plane to fly. And you need them both, Bible and prayer, for the spiritual life. And that is the, that is the message of this stanza. In the last stanza, verses 169 to 176, we are told, let the word inform your prayers. As you pray, let the word guide what you pray. Let your prayers be informed, conformed to the word of God, transformed by the word of God. 
focused on the word of God, meditated, reflecting of meditation on the word of God. Let the word guide what you pray and what you ask for. And then along with that, let your prayers lead you to the word. So as you pray and as you don't know and as you don't understand and as you have questions, as you have laments, let those realities guide you back to the word of God and the instruction that you will find in that word. Like many of the stanzas in this psalm, there is an awareness that the psalmist is writing in the context of suffering and hardship. And we'll see that in just a moment. And when you are suffering... When you're suffering from your own sin, when you're suffering from the sins of others, when you're suffering from the fallenness and the brokenness that is in this world, then read the Bible and pray. When suffering, the psalmist will say, imitate these four prayers. And so what we'll find in this psalm essentially is four prayers of the psalmist. For times of suffering. When you're suffering, imitate, mimic, follow these four prayers of the psalmist. The first is found in verses 169 and 170. It is simply this Lord, hear my prayer. Hear me. The psalmist begins the final stanza with a prayer. And a request. Notice what he says. The first line, 169, let my cry Come before you. That word cry is often a cry of jubilation and rejoicing and exaltation. It's, it's what I was doing early in November when the Rangers finally won the World Series. My kids took a video of me watching the Rangers win and they showed it to me. And it's, it's like, you know, you've got this thing of what you're looking like and I look nothing like that. I mean, there were tears and there was excitement and there was wonder and there was awe. And that's this word. And often when he says, let me cry, it's that exaltation and it's that wonder and that excitement and that passion. But it's not always that way. Sometimes it's also a cry of lament. It's the cry of sorrow. It's the cry of not understanding and not knowing and wondering. And it is, it appears, that here. We think that he is again pointing to his suffering just in the next line in 169. He says, give me understanding. That is, I'm in these circumstances that I don't understand, that don't make sense. They're perplexing and they're difficult and they're hard. Would you give me understanding in the midst of that? In 170, he will say, I I have a request. That's his supplication. Deliver me. I can't do it on my own. I'm suffering and someone is opposed. Someone is against me and I need your deliverance. In 173, he will ask for the helping hand of the Lord. In 174, he asks for salvation. And so all the way through this stanza, we are finding this this recognition that he needs help and that he that he isn't able and that there are those who are opposed against him. And worst of all, did you hear 176? I've gone astray like a lost sheep. It's not only that people are opposed to me, but I'm opposed to myself, as it were. I'm suffering because of my own sin. I've gone astray and I need that help. And so he is coming to the Lord in this season of suffering and difficulty and perplexion. 
What's happening? Again, in 170, he will say something very similar in the first line. Let my supplication come before you. I have a need. I don't have an ability to meet that need. I am dependent on you. So what is what is very clear in this psalm, this stanza, is that he is suffering. And we have seen this repeatedly. I won't go back through everything, but but just listen to some of the most recent laments of the psalmist. 153, look upon my affliction and rescue me. 156, great are your mercies, O Lord, revive me. I'm dying. Help me here. Verse 70, oh, excuse me, verse 157, many are my persecutors and my adversaries. I'm not only opposed, but I don't even know how many of them. They're, they're, they're almost countless. 161, princes persecute me without cause. So over and over we find that the psalmist is, is being persecuted. He's suffering. He's hurting. And in his suffering, he makes here one request. Let my cry come before you. What does that mean? Will you hear me? Will you listen to me? Will you answer me? Will you even notice me in my problems? He wants assurance that God is a prayer hearing God. Don't you want that same assurance too? I don't know what your problems are. I know what some of your problems are. I don't know all of your problems. Not nearly. And you don't know mine. Not nearly all of them. And in our problems and in our difficulty and in our trials, we go to the Lord and in going to him and saying, let my cry come before you. We're asking him, will you hear? Will you answer? And we're begging and we're pleading with him that he might answer and that he might be attentive to us. The psalmist cannot compel God to act for him. The psalmist cannot compel God to act for us. We cannot compel God to act for us. He is not obligated to us. But, oh, brothers and sisters, he is inclined to love us, to care for us, to give to us and to sustain us. He loves to be gracious to his people. Let me just give you... A couple of reminders. You know these realities, but sometimes when you're in the midst of the hardship, isn't it hard to remember God is good? So, 119, uh, 68. You are good and you do good. Teach me your statutes. Whatever God is doing, it is coming out of the goodness of His character and everything He does is good. It may not seem good in the moment, but it is 103, verse 8, the Lord is compassionate. He is gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins. He has not rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, How high is that? How far do the galaxies go? We can't see the end. That high is His loving kindness toward those who fear Him. 
As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions for us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. He knows our frame. He's mindful. We are only dust. He's compassionate. He cares. He hears. If you're reading along with the Bible reading plan that we have for you this morning, you read Psalm 5. Give ears to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Heed the sound of my cry for help, my King and my God. For to you I pray. And then listen to this, verse 3. In the morning, O Lord, you will hear my voice. And that can mean that in the morning you'll hear me praying to you, but it also means in the morning you will hear and you will be attentive. Similarly, in Psalm 6, verse 9, the Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord receives my prayer. So when the psalmist comes to him and says, Lord, hear, he can be confident. That the Lord hears and not just audibly hears, not just audibly understands, not not just audibly is cognizant of the fact that Terry's given this prayer, but he is moved towards that prayer. His inclination is to answer that prayer. He delights as a compassionate father to answer those prayers. Notice as we come to this stanza, verses 169 and 170, the content of his prayers, and he will ask for three things, and in a particular way he will ask. One, he asks for fellowship. You notice a little prepositional phrase in verses 169 and 170? Let my cry come before you, O Lord. That prepositional phrase before you is repeated in 170. Let my supplication come before you. In other words, I want my prayer in your presence. I want you to be audible of or to be understanding of that that audible prayer. I want I want you to hear me. I want access to you. And that echoes the last line of the previous stanza. 168. I keep your precepts and your testimonies For all my ways are, same prepositional phrase, before you. They're in your presence. They are with you. You see everything I do. And here he says, I want you to hear everything I ask for. I want your help. I want you. I want to be with you. When we pray and we ask God for help, do we want his help? Or do we want him? Just by way of reminder, technical idea here. This is a deep theological truth, but I think you can grasp it. God is not your genie. God is not one that we rub a bottle and say, you're now obligated to do what I tell you to do. That's not who he is. But he is accessible to us as our loving father who delights to care for us. There's nothing wrong with asking him for help. And we're going to see in a moment the necessity of asking for help. But since we are created to have fellowship with him, and that is is a primary 
reason for our creation is we're designed for fellowship. When we come to him in prayer, do we want what he can give or do we want him and his fellowship? Do we delight in prayer? Our prayer should not only include requests for help, but requests for him. Will I know you and will I know your fellowship more fully because of this circumstance and this need? Will you delight to surround me by your comfort and your presence? He wants, first of all, fellowship with God in heaven. Secondly, he asks for understanding. Verse 169, second line. Give me understanding. This is a request for discernment to comprehend his problem. I don't get it. You ever said that? You don't have to raise your hand, but I think if we were all honest, we'd all raise our hand, wouldn't we? I don't get it. I don't understand. We've been in this situation over and over and over, and it seems that there's been faithfulness. I don't understand. Why does this situation keep happening to to me, to my sibling, to my brother in Christ? What are you doing? I don't understand. And his request is simply, help me to understand. Help me to understand the circumstance. Help me to understand what I should do because he doesn't know. And we don't know. And notice this as well. Give me understanding, but don't just give me any old understanding. If you want understanding, you can go out into the world and people will give you options for things that might be reasons for what's going on in your life. And that's not what he's after. Give me understanding. What does he say? According to your word. That is, from your word. I want my understanding to be shaped by you and your word. I want to be conformed to your word. So notice he's praying and his prayer drives him where? To the word. And we'll also find that as he's in the word, he's driven to prayer. I want to be shaped by your word. There are lots of sources of pseudo-wisdom, but there's only one source of wisdom. Only the word of God will make sense of our trials and our difficulties. 101 tells us that that the word of God will keep us from sin. 107 will tell us that, that the word of God will revive us. 92 says the word of God gives us delight. 71 tells us that it will teach us and transform us. And all those things will happen in the midst of our trials. This book is the source of wisdom. It is the source of understanding for us in our difficulties. So he asked, would you give me understanding? Not only to understand the situation, but to understand what to do that will be conformed to and by your word. Thirdly, he asks for deliverance. The word for deliverance in verse 170, where he says, deliver me according to your word. That word deliverance typically refers to extraction from a precarious and weighty problem. He wants out from underneath this pile that is on top of him that that he can't get out of on his own. He is stuck in a ditch that is impossible to crawl his way out of, as it were. He's incapable of remedying his own situation, so he turns to the Lord for help. I need your deliverance. And notice that. 
Now, he's asked for understanding, right? He's asked for fellowship, and those things are more than appropriate. They're, they're, I might even say they're the ultimate things that we ought to be asking for. But it's not wrong to ask for help. I need help. It's okay to ask the Lord for healing. Read through the Gospels and see how many people came to Jesus Christ and said, Would you heal me? Now, he doesn't heal everyone always, and he doesn't always heal everyone on earth. Sometimes he takes them to heaven in order to heal them. But he's always hearing that prayer. It's acceptable to ask him for healing. It's acceptable in Matthew 6 to ask for food and shelter. Lord, I don't know where the next meal is coming from. Will you provide it? And will you sustain me? And then notice this as well. He asks for deliverance. He asks for help. Would you meet my need? And notice how he asks it. Deliver me again, just like 169, according to your word. And I think we find from that, according to the promises that we find in your word, would you, would you deliver me according to what you promised about yourself, that you're a delivering kind of God who loves to provide for his people? Would you deliver me in that way? But also, would you deliver me because... Because that's the kind of God you are. Would you deliver me in a way that reflects your glory as it has been revealed in your word? Would you deliver me according to the promises of your word? And again, it's a reminder that we are dependent on him and we're dependent on the word of God to provide for us in all of our needs. Notice as well. That the Lord could, that the psalmist could go to any one of a number of places and he goes to the Lord for help. Think about, think about Mary and Martha. Remember them from the New Testament? Mary, Martha, and their brother Lazarus. John chapter 11. Great story. Just packed with all kinds of rich theology of our Savior and his power and his nature. And Mary and Martha. Um, are concerned because Lazarus is sick, deathly sick. And I'm not just saying that just to say that. He was deathly sick. He was about to die. And so what did the the sisters do? They appealed to the Lord. Verse 3, John 11. So the sisters sent word to him saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is it. Interestingly, they don't say, please come. They don't say, please heal. They just lay it out there without even asking why. Because they know he's compassionate and they know he cares. And they know that he will do what is best for their sibling. And the one who loved the three siblings, Mary, Martha and Lazarus, did what was best with them for them. Verse 5, now Jesus loved Mary, excuse me, loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And out of that love, he let him die. In fact, delayed his return until he knew that he would die. That's in the text. And then it tells us in verse 23, after Martha says to him, even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give to you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Now, she's a good theologian and she says, yeah, 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 I know. I believe in the resurrection. No, 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 no. I mean, like he will rise again, like today. 
and he demonstrated his glory. What do Mary and Martha do in their need? They go to Jesus and they say, will you help me? Where do you go when you have a need? Go to Jesus and he will help you. That sounds simplistic and it sounds trite. But where else are you going to go? Who else will provide for you? Well, we've got a loving church body and we care for each other, but there's a limit. We do not have infinite resources. We do not have infinite wisdom, but our Savior does. You go to him, you ask him for help, and he will help you. Whatever your problem is, let me restate that. Whatever your problems are, and I know you have them, he is enough. You ask him. And he will help you. There's one more aspect I want you to see from this petition. Lord, hear my prayer. And it is this. He asks for Yahweh. He asks the Lord. He's not just making these requests. I want you to see of whom he is making these requests. 169. Let my cry come before you. Oh, Lord, that's you can see, at least like in my Bible, it has the word Lord in small caps. And that's to designate that it's the covenant name of God. It's Yahweh. It's the God who makes the promises to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and Joseph that he will be their perpetual God. He is in covenant with them and Israel is, is the chosen people of God and he will eternally preserve them. And it is on that basis, it is that God to whom he goes. Now, there are all kinds of references to the names of God throughout this psalm. What's interesting is that in this stanza, he only uses the name of God twice. In 169, let my cry come before you, O Yahweh. And 174, I long for your salvation, O Yahweh. And it's a reminder that as he goes to him in prayer, he's going to the one who is above all things, the one who has made the covenant, and get this, the one who keeps his promises. Again, it's a reminder that he is dependent on him, the psalmist is dependent on God, but also that the God who has promised is faithful, he is trustworthy, And don't miss this. The psalmist has access to him. And we, through Christ, also have access. The writer of Hebrews says to go boldly into the throne of God. You have access. Go to him for your help. That's the first request. Lord, hear my prayer. Second request. Lord, I give you my praise. I give you my praise. 171 and 172. I don't know about you, but when life kind of ratchets up for me and there's more problem than I want in a given day and there's difficulty and there are things that are weighing on me, It's tempting to forget God. It's tempting not to thank God. It's tempting to not praise God. And even worse, 
It's tempting to complain. It's tempting to become embittered. It's, it's tempting to even become angry at God. And the psalmist is not immune to those, those temptations. He understands them. It, it, if we understood the, the significance of what was going on, we'd probably say it's astounding that he hasn't become embittered. The psalmist doesn't go there. What's interesting is we don't know the exact nature of his problem. He says repeatedly that he's opposed by others, that others are against him, even princes, rulers, authorities are against him. And we don't know exactly what's going on. We don't know his problem, but we do know his praise. We do know his heart of gratitude. So notice 171. Let my lips utter praise. Let my lips utter praise of you is the implication. He, he wants to not just praise, but he wants to pour out praise. It's, it's a word that has an idea of gushing forth. Like the time when somebody came to me, the uh, person that was reading my water meter tapped on my door one day. Never a good thing when the meter person comes to tap on your door and she says, I don't know what's going on with your water, but your, your water meter is spinning so fast I can't see the hand. Not that little, you know, the little dialy thing that just kind of spins whenever there's water running. Not that one. Like the big one that just barely moves. That thing was spinning so fast you couldn't see it. 300,000 gallons in a month. Yeah, that's another story for another day. What I want you to hear is my meter was gushing. That's what he wants to do in praise. He wants gushing praise. Uncontrolled, overflowing, liberal praise of God. And then notice 172. Not just gushing praise, but then there he says, let my tongue, that corresponds to lips in verse 171. So he's saying the same thing. Let my tongue sing of your word. So as he's praying, where does he go? To the word. He wants to echo and pour forth, pour forth praise of God's word. He wants to magnify the word of God. He wants to declare the wonders of the word of God. And he wants to sing it. 172 is a reminder of the wisdom of using song to direct our hearts to worship, to rest in God to be controlled by God, to be shaped in our minds and our hearts by God and His Word. You ever notice that it's hard to sin and pray at the same time? It's hard to be gluttonous and pray at the same time. It's hard to be coveting something on Amazon and pray at the same time. God, would you provide food for, will you, will you provide my, my need to pay my rent bill while I'm buying this thing on Amazon? That doesn't work. You can't pray and covet at the same time. You can't pray and be greedy at the same time. You can't praise in song and grumble at the same time. That's where he's going. Would you give words to my lips that are saturated with songs of delight in you and in your word? Why does the psalmist want to praise God? I mean, he's got trouble. He's got unimaginable trouble. Why why does he praise? Because, notice this, because, verse 171, for, that's the word because, 
I want to utter praise. I want to gush forth praise because you teach me your statutes. You teach me the binding commands that are of your word. That's what the word statutes is. It's things that we are obligated to do. And you teach me that those binding commands are good. Oh, by the way, what's one of the binding commands of God's word? To praise him. To delight in him. It's been said of this verse that God has personally and regularly tutored him, the psalmist, in life's ultimate survival manual. God has taught him. God's explained to him in his word. And now he says, I want to express that gratitude in praise to you and praise of your word. He also praises God, notice 172, because, for, same word, because you teach me, excuse me, for all your commandments are righteous. Everything that you will find in the word of God is right. No error here. No mistakes here. That's another way of saying you will never be led astray by the word of God. It will always lead you righteously to right things, right places, right people, right actions. People will frequently lead you astray with their suggestions, their commands, their directions. I don't know you, but a lot of times I've said, what did we ever do before Google Maps? Well, I was there. I know what we did. If you were a guy, you wandered around hopelessly for hours on end because you would never stop to ask anybody. I know that. I'm part of that club. But how many times have you looked at Google Maps and you go, what in the world is it doing? Right? I mean, even recently, in the last couple of months, I was driving somewhere I hadn't been before, Google Maps, and it says, um, you know, in a quarter mile, exit, whatever, take this turn. And I exit, and then, you know, it has me go straight along the freeway, and then it has me get back on the freeway. It's like, what was that about? Google Maps will lead you astray. <laughs> it's a deep theological truth, isn't it? You'll be given counsel that will lead you astray. People will counsel you about what to do with your children that will lead you astray. People will tell you how to relate to your parents that will lead you astray. People will tell you how to handle your money that will lead you astray. You will be given uninformed and unwise, foolish counsel for decisions you need to make. You will be misled to make a foolish decision because someone has an agenda for your life and it's not for you, it's against you. In this book, you will never be led astray because every word in it is right. Every word in it is for you. You ever had a relationship and you wondered... Is this person for me or against me? This book is for you. And it will always lead you in right ways. And that, my brothers, is why the psalmist praises. Because he can say, you've taught me 
And you've directed me. And I was always led in right ways by you and your word. I trust you. Can I just give you a couple of implications from these verses? Following the pattern of these verses, do you sing the word of God? Do you you have a playlist that will help direct your heart toward Christ? I walked in this morning with my cup of coffee for Regine. Actually, it wasn't my cup of coffee. It was her cup of coffee. Came into the bedroom with her cup of coffee for her. Set it in the bathroom for her. Turned on the heater for her. Came to the bed. Said, I've got your coffee. It's time to get up. And um, I had my phone in my pocket. I hadn't paid any attention to it. It was still playing a little music. She said, what is that? Oh, that's my Sunday morning. Get my heart ready for preaching playlist. I've got one of those. Helps guide me as I read the word of God, as I meditate on the word of God. And then I have another playlist for when I'm getting ready, for when I'm getting dressed. That one's a kind of a quiet playlist. And then I want another one. It's the City of Light playlist. Right, okay, so several of you have that same playlist, right? It's just focusing. As I'm shaving and as I'm tying my tie, it's focusing my heart on the Word of God and biblical truth and preparing my heart for worship. You need to have those kinds of playlists because you play those songs and then later in the day, you just find yourself singing those songs, don't you? You need to grab some of the things we're singing on Sunday morning and say, hey, what's that song? Go to the newsletter, find the song, add it to your playlist. You sing the word of God. Secondly, do you regularly give focused attention to praise and gratitude in prayer? I don't do it all the time, but there are days where periodically I'll just say, okay, I'm struggling to be thankful. Today's a day of thanks. And all I do that day is just pray gratitude. Because I need to be reminded that there are things for which I can be thankful even when life is hard. And there are days and seasons when you need to be intentional to keep a thank list. What are the things every day that God is doing for which you are thankful, for which you can praise Him? You need to write those things down, keep a hold of them, and then pray over those things on a regular basis. Second prayer, Lord, I give you my praise. First prayer was, Lord, hear my prayer. Third prayer, verses 173 to 175, Lord, be near me. Lord, be near me. In the first four, stan- first four lines of this stanza, the psalmist is looking upward. He's thinking about his relationship with the Lord. In the final four lines of this stanza, he's looking outward and thinking about his problems and thinking about his circumstances. He's thinking about his need for help. And here we find in 173 then his petition for God to assist him. Notice what he says. Let your hand be ready to help me. What's his hand? His hand is is symbolic, figurative for his power, his strength. His hand is the thing that acts. It's by his hand that the worlds are created. It's by his hand that the worlds are upheld. And so when he appeals to his hand, he's saying, would you apply your omnipotent power to my problem and to my situation? Because I need help. I can't do this on my own. And it's yet another reminder of the psalmist inadequacy and the psalmist dependence on God. God must act if he will survive. And so he says similarly in one In in verse 86, all your commandments are faithful. They have persecuted me with a lie. Help me. 
If I don't get your help, I won't make it. 147, he says something similar. I rise before dawn and cry for help. I wait for your words. I need your help. Would you help me? Would you guide me? Would you provide for me? And notice he again provides a reason. Why does he say help me? Because for 173, I have chosen your precepts. He simply means by that, I've been faithful to you. That word chosen has the idea, I've gone out into the world and I've considered all of the options. I've read, I've read psychology today and I've watched Oprah and I've looked at all the billboards on the highway and I've considered all of it and I'm going to you because nobody else has any answers. I've considered and I've chosen you. I want you. I've been faithful to you. And he simply means by that, I'm not making this request illegitimately. I'm not making this request to manipulate you and to, to have you meet some, some need of mine when I don't care about you and don't want you. No. I've chosen you. I'm one of yours. Would you help me as one of your children? This statement is a reminder to us that every day there are choices before us. There are choices about which road we're going to follow. Are you going to go the road of obedience to God or are you going to go the road of the world? That's really the only two options. Are you going to follow God or are you going to follow the world? And oh, by the way, following the world is following yourself. It's exalting yourself and saying you have the path of wisdom, you have knowledge, and God doesn't. Which way are you going to go? There's only two roads in life. The road to God, the road to the world that leads to perdition. My friend, if you are here this morning and you are not a follower of God, understand that there are only those two roads. There aren't a multiplicity of roads and all roads don't lead to God. There's only one road that leads to God. And it's this road that's in His Word that reveals Him, reveals His nature, reveals His character, reveals His Savior, our Savior. That's why Jesus says, John 14, 6, I am the way. He doesn't say, I am one way. He doesn't say, I am a way. He says, I am the way. I am the pathway. I am the road. There's only one road. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. If you want to get to the Father, you must go through Christ. If you want to get to the Father, you've got to go through this road that's revealed in His Word. And friend, if you are not a Christian today, this morning... And with this many people in this room, I have no doubt that there are some here who are not followers of Jesus Christ. If you are not a follower of Christ, you've got a choice to make. You're going to follow the world, you're going to follow yourself, or you're going to follow Christ. There's only one road to life, and it's to Christ. Do what the psalmist does. I have chosen you. I've chosen your precepts. And when you follow him, he will help you. It could be that you're this morning a believer in Jesus Christ, but you've taken some tangents off the roadway to Jesus Christ. Can I just remind you that ESPN, the NFL playoffs, the college playoffs, large salaries, Fox News, sexual indulgence, alcohol, consumeristic consumption, none of those will ever satisfy. Only Jesus Christ. And only his word will give you hope and are worth following. And if you're not following him for whatever reason, for rebellion or apathy or laziness, 
It's time to choose him today. You follow him like the psalmist today. 174 amplifies that, expands that, and affirms his desire for salvation. I long for your salvation. Here we find again that reference to the covenant name of God, O Lord. Like George Bailey in, in a wonderful, It's a Wonderful Life, the psalmist wants to live. You hear this lament in him. I just want to live. I want to live. I want to live. And that's what his request for salvation is. It's a request for life. I want to be saved to life. Commentators will question, is he asking for temporal salvation? Does he want salvation for his problems? Or does he want salvation for eternal life? It can go either way. The word is used in either way. The word of salvation, 174, is used to refer to temporal things. Save me from this problem, from this persecution. Help me to live. That's an appropriate prayer to pray. But it also is used about eternal salvation. I think that's where his leaning is because of 176. I've gone astray like lost sheep. I've sinned. And I'm looking for eternal life. Will you save me? And why does he want to be saved? Because that salvation gets him to God. That's what the first opening verses were all about. It gets me to God. And he wants that eternal salvation as well. Notice he says it, 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 in 174, second part of the, of the line, your law is my delight. He's giddy over God's law. I use that word intentionally. He's not just happy. He's giddy. He's overwhelmed with happiness over God's law. I won't take a poll and ask, how many of you love the law that you find in the world around you? Because I think I know what I'm going to find. Um, how could the law have been delight to him? In fact, we understand that the law didn't save, did it? Right? So there was no keeping of the law that produces salvation. Nobody could say, kept the law. I got to all um, 365 commands and I kept every one of them. Didn't violate a single one. Nobody could say that. Nobody could say, I'm saved by the law. The law only condemned. So how could the law be his delight? Because... The law told him how to obey God. And his delight was in obeying what God said to do. He would rather obey what God said to do than to delight in the things of the world. And because it led him to trust in God for his salvation. As he he tries to obey the law, and often he does obey the law, but at times he doesn't. And he realizes, I'm not righteous. So what does he do? Psalm 106, verse 30, speaking about the plague in Numbers, it says, Then Phineas stood up and interposed, and so the plague was stayed. Psalm 106, 30, now verse 31. And it was reckoned to him for righteousness to all generations forever. It was imputed, accounted to him for righteousness. What does... What does the law of God do? It leads us to trusting in God for righteousness. I can't, you must. And that's where we get our salvation. And he says on that basis, your law is my delight. Not that I can keep it, but because through the law, I find your revelation and the promise of salvation. And then notice verse 175, where he asks for 
strength and for wisdom. He says, let my soul live that it may praise you. That, that phrase, let my soul live, could be translated something like, let my soul, let my life be revived so that I may yet praise you. And he's asking here for the extension of life. Would you, would you allow me to persist in life, not for my own ends, but so that on this earth I can yet praise you? If I'm going to praise you, it's got to happen here. So I want to praise you. Will you give me more days so that I can praise you? Would you renew me, revive me? And then notice 175 as well, second part of that line. Let your ordinances help me. He needs the word of God to guide him. So as he prays and as he makes the request, he's led back to the word of God. This word is what will transform, what will change me. And as we come to these verses, 173 to 175, what we find is the psalmist is appealing for closeness to God. He wants God's hand to come close and help him. He wants eternal salvation of God to enjoy his fellowship eternally. And he wants physical life now so that he can praise and delight in God. He has learned what the psalmist says elsewhere, Psalm 73, that the nearness and refuge of God is our good. He wants fellowship and closeness to God. One last request he makes, 176. Lord, forgive me. I've got to tell you, as I've been thinking about this psalm, as I've been anticipating, as I've been thinking about the end, and then this week as I've been working through this psalm, this, this verse just stands out. It seems an anomaly. It, it seems anticlimactic. It seems like ending a song on a minor note. And it just, it almost seems discordant. I've gone astray like a lost sheep. That seems antithetical to all the things that he's been talking about. And this is the final word. I've gone astray like a lost sheep. He's anticipating what Isaiah will write in 53, 6. All of us like sheep have gone astray. We've wandered. We've gone the wrong direction. We haven't obeyed. And yet what is particularly ironic about that statement is he almost seems to contradict it in other places. Verse 10 and then again in 110, he says, the wicked have laid a snare for me, yet I have not gone astray from your precepts. I haven't disobeyed. I haven't wandered away. And then here, the last word, I've gone astray. In fact, but even seems ironic. He says, I've gone astray. Seek your servant. Why? Because 176, last line, I do not forget your commandments. Those two things seem to be in contradiction, don't they? I've gone astray. I don't, I don't disobey. I don't forget. What does he mean? I think to put it in New Testament terms, we would, just, we would simply say he's still struggling with the flesh. He still recognizes that there are hard things that he doesn't do. There are places, there are aspects of his life where he isn't completely obedient. There are times that in spite of his desire to obey, he sometimes fails. And that failure is a wandering. It's a going astray, just like a sheep that has wandered off. And if anybody is going to come back from sin, what does he need? He needs a savior to come and find him and bring him home. Pictures John 15, doesn't it? Pictures Luke 15, the father, John 10, excuse me, and Luke 15. The shepherd who leaves the 99 in the pen and goes and finds the one and brings it back. 
And he says, will you seek me? Will you find me? Will you bring me back home? And it's, it's another way of saying what he has said all the way through this psalm. I only have you. Will you and your word save me? So we think about Psalm 119. It's covered a huge number of topics from beginning to end. It's about the power of the word of God and the sufficiency of the word of God. It's a reminder that in this world, we have trouble. Sometimes the trouble comes from the world. Sometimes it comes from our circumstances. Sometimes it comes from our own hearts, from our own inclinations to sin. And wherever our trouble comes from, this this psalm reminds us that we have everything we need in the word of God. We have access, not only in the Word of God, but this stanza reminds us we have access also to the Word of God and to God Himself in prayer. In 2024, let the Word of God lead you to pray and let your prayer lead you to the Word of God. To that end, let us pray. Our Father... We thank you that we can call you Father and that you hear and you answer when we pray. You are not ignorant of our prayers. You are not apathetic about our prayers. But you hear and you love and you delight to answer. Sometimes we have to wait even as the Reniacs are experiencing this day. We have to wait. But when we come to you with these repeated prayers, we are waiting not because you're apathetic, not because you're impotent, but because you are wise beyond our our understanding. And so we ask and we trust And we lean. And as we do so, we also praise you. We recognize your goodness and your greatness. We recognize that everything you do and say is right because everything you are is right. And that means you're trustworthy. You're holy. You can never do anything that is sinful. You can never do anything that is malicious. And so we trust you with our trials. And we ask, Father, not only that you would provide for us in our trials, but we would ask for you to be near to us. Would we know your comfort? Would we know your peace? Would we know your presence in the midst of our trials? Would you be our refuge as you provide for us? And then, Father, there are seasons as well where we wander away from you And would you meet that greatest need of all from your word? Would you forgive us, restore us, sanctify us to walk with you, to be transformed into the likeness of our beloved Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.